Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Isvan Javorik. Yes, the godfather of barbell complexes, as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. This episode's guest is Ben Escrow from DeNovo Nutrition. Ben is the founder and CAO of DeNovo Nutrition, which is a company that has both a consulting and supplement branch based on the objective science and ethical practice. Ben is a registered dietitian 
as well as having a master's in nutrition and exercise science from Marywood University. He has over six years experience of coaching and programming for individuals all the way from general population folks to elite competitors such as IPF Worlds 2015 93-kilo silver medalist Lane Norton. In addition to being a highly regarded coach, he's also an accomplished competitor as both a USBF Pro Qualified Natural Bodybuilder and an internationally qualified IPF powerlifter. And currently, Ben is getting his master's in pharmacology. On this episode, Ben and I discussed many topics, including Ben's background and his influences. Ben and I discussed how exactly are dietary supplements made? What are the good and not so good things that Ben sees within the physical preparation and nutrition professions? And what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he is currently seeing? Ben shares with us his training and nutrition philosophies. Ben also shares with us his training and nutrition systems. Ben discusses how he decides on the prescription of volumes, intensities, frequencies, and RPEs when working with strength-based athletes. Ben tells us why Dr. Mike Zordos has been one of his biggest influences on his programming philosophy. Ben talks about his periodization schemes with his strength athletes. Ben tells us why he decided to go back to college to pursue a master's in pharmacology. Ben discusses how he found his introduction to his master's program. Ben and I share some thoughts on how we like to learn. Ben shares with us his biggest lessons he has learned so far in his career and life. Ben shares with us his top resources and advice. Ben tells us what books he was reading at the time that we recorded this podcast. And finally, if Ben could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Ben, and I hope you really, really enjoyed. Ben Escrow, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to my podcast, sir. Uh, ben, just for the listeners who may not be too familiar with who you are, just fill us in on the background. Uh, so I, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I am, uh, I'm a powerlifting coach. I kind of bounce around a couple things in fitness. Uh, I also founded a supplement company called DeNovo Nutrition, so people may have heard of that before. Um, that was also partially where we were taking clients at, at one point, too. Um, so I had DeNovo Prep uh, with the nutrition and training consulting, and then I also am currently working on a pharmaceutical chemistry degree. Um, so pretty much everything falls into the realm of either uh, formulating programming and nutrition plans or formulating dietary supplements. That was a very concise background. So we're going to dig a, <laughs> dig a little more. You kind of gave us where you are currently. So like, I mean, how did you even get into this whole profession? I mean, uh, like to take, take a story, were you a young teenager? Did you just start like lifting weights? Did you get into nutrition? Then like what made you go back to education and, and, you know, do your undergrad initially. And then now, as you said, you're currently doing uh, something for, uh, or a, a master's in pharmacology. Um, sure. like, so what led you to where you are now? Uh, I remember I was in high school. I, I played basketball. I, I ran, I did the jumps and track. And actually before that I rode BMX bikes. So 
I was actually the antithesis of a lifter. It w- I, I actually thought it was kind of silly why anybody would want to be big and muscular. Like I, I thought the look was even silly. Mm. And then, um, of course, <laughs> you know, a couple of years later, I, I just decide I'm going to completely 180. And um, I the first thing, I, I just wanted to be lean. Like that was the most important thing to me. So I dieted. Uh, you know, I, th- I think it's a traditional thing, like I want a six-pack type stuff. And I'm a tall guy and, and pretty fairly lanky. So when I dieted, I've realized, oh, man, I need some muscle for this to look better. And that kind of began the next decade-plus obsession of, of gaining muscle and getting stronger and everything. So um, it really started with something that I, I think I, one of the things that's, that, that's always carried with me is I've always been a very goal-driven person and with a lot of things that are outside of kind of changing your physique, there can be attainable fairly quickly. Like if if you say like, I want to learn how to draw better or something or like play music, you can always get better in those, but you can actually get to a point where you feel like you're playing music or, or drawing within, I don't know, a year or so. Whereas, um, you know, I guess overhauling your physique, especially gaining muscle and stuff, um, those things take a lot longer of a time and typically a lot longer before you're kind of satisfied. You can even argue the case if you're ever satisfied. Um, so I think what really pulled me in was the fact that uh, there was so much information and so little um, I, I guess really really guidance that was giving any kind of clear answers. And and I was never satisfied with like the pitch, like the marketing pitches of stuff. So it really kept me diving deeper into learning more and actually understanding. Because I, I think when you really first get into it, and maybe even as you're in it for a long time, people are always chasing this elusive, perfect diet or perfect training program. And I think I was doing that for a long time. And then it, it brought me to needing to understand the the fundamentals and the first principles of really physiology, like metabolism and um, and like muscle plasticity and, and everything like that. So uh, that was really where the addiction started was I, I loved seeing the change of the lifting and then learning and understanding what was happening and being able to watch it happen was like, I think it became addicting on every every level for me. So um, I could probably go for another 10 minutes, but I'll let you kind of interject. And, and if you want more, I'll let you ask. No, no, that's that's perfect. So just just for your own uh, just for your own knowledge here as well, I'm a very easygoing host, so you can go as long or as short as you want with, <laughs> with, with any, because I have plenty of questions, but I have no issue with someone like taking as long as they want with any sort of questions. Um. No, that's fantastic. Just with, with, with DeNovo, I suppose, what was the uh, what, what what ignited the idea that you really wanted to start DeNovo Nutrition? So, <clears throat> I was, I, I think, again, kind of as is normal with young males who get into fitness, supplements are very appealing. And um, I was a very avid supplement consumer, some could say supplement junkie. And I, I, I got, I guess I approached it the same way is like, 
I, I would start buying stuff, and originally it was very driven by the marketing and wanting to believe what I was being sold. And then it slowly became like, oh man, I I just I've just been had like this. There's so much of a a, a cover in front of this that like I'm buying the marketing. I'm not buying the product. So like I really need to understand it. It's my if I ever want to not be wasting money anymore, I need to understand what's going on uh, with these ingredients. I can't just say this is promising me five pounds in ten weeks. Like I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot. Like that that isn't a very good long term strategy. So I started to really delve in and became super interested in the products that did work. And I was super intrigued on okay, well, why is this different than this? And and why did this work and that didn't? When they're both using these very foreign sounding compounds and um, and at that point not really understanding a heck of a lot, if any, of the chemistry behind it. Also realized that I was getting into largely into supplements when the pro-hormone era still existed too. And there was a lot more, uh, <laughs> I guess you could say stronger stimulants on the market before they were banned. And that at that point, like ephedra was still widely available pretty much in all the popular products. And I just felt a personal and also external responsibility to understand what this stuff was because people would ask me. At that point, I was an undergrad for nutrition and I, I lifted uh, in multiple different gyms with, within the school. And then also when I'd come home and people would, would ask, and I also went for my RD. So people would ask me on multiple levels, like, what do you think about supplements? What do you think about these things? So, um, I think to feel competent on the professional end, I felt responsible to know. And then also for my own personal gain, I wanted to know, so I could know what to take to get the best return and to, really expedite my progress best I could uh, within training. So it really became a multifaceted thing. And what I began seeing more and more is that a, a, a depressingly large amount of it is is bullshit. Like it's, it's just, um, it's covered under this kind of marketing guise. And I just said to myself like, okay, well, if I can figure out what works, why don't I just make stuff myself? And then I could use it for myself, and I could recommend people to buy what I know is legitimate. So I started, I just started doing it. Like I started sourcing raw materials and figuring out ways to batch mix. And I bought a capsule, a hand presser for capsules, and I was hand capping stuff and making my own formulations. And I'd get blood work, and uh, I'd have friends who were in the small lifting community who I'd basically hand make a small batch and have them get pre and post blood work and. And, and see what was happening and then obviously get subjective response too. So, um, yeah, it started off on a very simple thing. I, I always hoped it would, you know, become something bigger, but honestly, I never, uh, it was really about the formulation and that's something that still holds true today is like without the appeal or the ability to deep dive and learn more about how this affects this and that, that effect, obviously that's why I'm doing you know, pharmaceutical chemistry now and pharmacology. So uh, it just keeps getting deeper. Man, you are a nerd. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, it's funny because I, I always identified in high school with being an athlete. And now, whereas before, I guess I would have almost found that offensive. Now I am honored by, by that title. 
Sashi, it's, uh, it's kind of similar to myself because when, when I was younger too, I was all about just playing sport and had no sort of uh, interest in education. It's the opposite now, whereas uh, I'd be the very same in terms of... It was funny because um, I know I said this to you before we came online, but I, I heard your interview with Ben Pogalski and he was he was saying that he uh, his initial um, introduction to you was a guy who, in between his sets of squats or deadlifts or bench, <laughs> Was, was reading his biochemistry book. <laughs> and it, yeah. was, it, it was funny because that's exactly what I do too sometimes in that. <laughs> I'll have like, if I'm doing a book review or reading a paper, like I'll have my iPad there with the paper up the PDF and I'm reading it or else I'll actually read a physical book. Because I was the same idea as you in that. I was like, you know, we, we, we rest so long and like this is time you can be using to do something. Absolutely. So I used to, but just a, a question I want to ask there. It's kind of intriguing because I actually asked this question and I've never gotten really good answers. So you said you got the raw materials and made supplements. Like I actually have asked this question in this way and still like no one gave me a good answer. What are supplements made from? Like as in like multivitamins and stuff. Like like what what is it from a plant? Is it from a leaf? Like the stuff in the actual capsule. What is that from? So when when someone says like this this is a B vitamin complex, where does B vitamins come from? Yeah, that's a really good question and. Uh... I, I wish more people would would be inquisitive about about the stuff they're consuming on on those levels. So it's a combination of things. So typically to fall under something that could be legally be legally be sold as a dietary supplement, it has to be a component of the food supply, which means from a plant or other things are just accepted in because they are they're they're of nutritive value so basically they're there's something that's already in our diet like a like a vitamin so a vitamin would be synthetically made by a lab or uh some large industrial uh chemistry company so vitamins in, unless it specifically says on the label that it's sourced from like vitamin c like you can get from i don't know rose hips or or something um or it could be synthetically made. Like when it says uh, ascorbic acid, then it's it's a synthetically made vitamin C. Um, whereas a lot of uh, like herbals are, it's a raw extract from a plant. Some things can be standardized to enhance potency. For example, like if you've ever read, I'm going to use one ingredient that that we use. Uh, called Makuna pruriens, which is the active in it is L-dopa. And L-dopa is the immediate precursor to dopamine. And you can standardize Makuna for L-dopa content. And it ranges. So you can go anywhere really from 20% L-dopa up to like 98%. Uh, obviously, as you get higher and higher, it becomes more of probably a synthetically made unless you extract it like you could extract pure caffeine anhydrous from from tea or from coffee so you can get the pure compound from a plant it's just pretty inefficient and sometimes it makes more sense uh to actually synthesize it from some more available precursor starting material than it than it would be to extract it um, because it'd just be wasteful and you'd be wasting so much material and the manpower and stuff like that. Um, so before, again, before I keep going on, on my tangent, did that answer your question? It, 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 it's, it started to answer my question. I suppose the, the next question I would ask is what, what does that actually look like? So like 
I'm someone listening to this and then you're there saying we extract it from a plant. Like some of you are like, what the fuck does that mean? What, like, what yeah, yeah. So just, just, just to give more content, like, I, myself personally, I have an idea, but like, what, what like, is, what's, what's, like, what's the machinery involved when you say extract? Like, like in my head, extract is like a needle goes into a plant leaf and it and takes under out. That's what, that's what comes to my mind. Like, okay. So I'll try to use something that is, um, universally relatable or, or identifiable that is kitchen chemistry that people do. Uh, so when you make tea or you make coffee, your tea is a better example. With tea, you're basically doing a water extraction of the tea leaf. So you are heating up, you're heating up water, which by heating, you're making compounds more soluble in it, especially water soluble or or some sparingly water-soluble compounds, you're making them more soluble in hot water, um, which, again, you can see just if you microwave water and you put your protein in, oh, it magically makes it more soluble. Just, again, kind of basic solubility uh, properties. Um, so you're putting the tea, the tea bag into the hot water, and what is coming out are any compounds that are, that are soluble in water. Anything that's not, so that would be fat-soluble, would stay in the leaf. That's why the leaves don't completely disintegrate in the water, and you could pull the bag out and then toss out whatever you didn't want from it. So in that scenario, if we then took the remaining water and we boiled it off, you'd be left with whatever compounds in that plant were water-soluble. So traditionally, not many actives on a level of things that have medicinal properties they're usually not water soluble um but things like vitamins or, or like different carbohydrates uh or other things are water soluble so again i'm trying to make it not sound so abstract so basically if i can go back and refine the statement that i just explained you would be you're pulling out compounds based on what's soluble in a certain solvent so like if you look at like if you went to go purchase, you went on to Alibaba, which I used to go on to and source raw materials, you can get like an ethanol extract, which is also called a tincture. You can get a water extract. You can get a dichloromethane extract. And all of these different things, they're different liquids that will pull different compounds out of the plant based upon how polar or non-polar the compound is. So like let's say testosterone was something you could pull out from a plant you would need a, a more uh you need something that pulls out non-polar compounds because testosterone is not going to get pulled out by water if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah of course it's fat soluble yeah so um so it doesn't always require something super elaborate or or massive it's just when you scale it up it becomes massive um, but a lot of times it, it depends, it really depends on how purified you want to make it. The more pure, the more synthetic and the more, uh, the clo- the further cl- you get towards making it synthetically and also the more steps in the process of extracting and purifying. Yeah, I get you. I just, then I suppose another sort of thing is how, how do you know if what you're getting out of it? So like, you know, let's say it is a, like bees or C's or whatever, like, or from a plant, like, how do you know you're getting 
what you're getting and also how do you know the amount you're getting to out of it? So do you mean for the manufacturer or for the consumer? For the manufacturer. So when they say there's this amount of this compound in one tablet, like how do they really know that? Yeah, so that's QC and that's analytical chemistry. So uh, if if you want to determine, like I have when I small batch stuff or when I get raw materials from a supplier, I bought myself an FTIR, which basically is a machine. It's called Fourier Transformed Infrared Spectrometry. So basically it shoots an infrared beam through a compound and based on how the bonds in that compound wiggle, it will change the spectrum of infrared light. So basically, certain bonds will re absorb and reflect different wavelengths of light, and an infrared spectrometer will, you can actually identify a compound that's in there. Um, it's a very quick and um, cheap way to, to determine if a compound is there. But it doesn't, you can't quantify it. So first step is FTIR. Then you can go further up the ladder, which is like HPLC is a pretty common one where you can determine. HPLC is high-performance high liquid chromatography. Um, so basically, you're watching compounds separate in a column. Uh, and from that, you can determine what's in there uh, and then what in what's amounts. But it's all relative to a... A standard that you would buy so like let's say I wanted to see how much caffeine was in a le uh, uh, like a tea leaf or a coffee bean so I would first of all need a standard of pure caffeine and I would need to have the that loaded into my HPL seed machine and then I'd be able to use the sample and use that as a standard against to see the concentration curves um, again it's like it's it's hard to give like a quick elevator pitch on on what the stuff is, but that's mm -hmm. I, I guess the most basic uh, answer I could give is is yeah it, they would be different analytical, like you might see a, a compound sold as like HPLC tested and verified. So basically that that just means that and everything pretty much should be <laughs> at some point in the distribution chain, um, but that just means that they've done their due diligence. And then you can also send stuff out for third-party testing uh, to labs like Chromadex, where, where they will do those things on finished product too, to make sure that it is what it says it's supposed to be. Great stuff. Well, I think uh, this could definitely be like a second or third podcast we'll do in the future, get really into sure. the something because it's, it's an area that I, uh, I have a lot of questions around um, just, just curious questions, not, not, not in a sinister way, like to, because I'm, I'm like uh, probably most listeners here and yourself. I, I realize supplements definitely have a part to play, and they, yep. they, can, they can be beneficial. Um, I'm just always been interested in the actual manufacturing process. I, I was like, like I always had that question of like, what, like in this capsule, like what the hell is it? Where is? I always like think of the Amazon forest and a leaf, and someone came and decimated it, and then like extracted it and then put it in a tablet and said here you go here's your point that's what always comes to my mind but i just always wanted to know that process i mean in that's the thing is like some things aren't even standardized really much at all like like ashwagandha and stuff like that like you can you're basically just getting the full spectrum all it is is it's the dried leaf then and it's ground up and put into a capsule so there is a lot of stuff that is like that but realize just like i was talking about with solubilities the reason they're in capsules is because a lot of those things are leaves, so they're not going to disperse into water too well. Um, 
So these are all kind of the whole wheelhouse of things that need to be considered in a formulation because no one wants to dump a powder into liquid or into their water jug and then have it sit on top and be brown and be gritty. So it, I mean, it is, and rightfully so, it, it's moving closer and closer to pharma and really a lot of the people that we've met with and manufacturers, like they're, they're, they're pharma certified um, and they're FDA inspected and everything. So um, it, it is getting, with every year that passes, it's becoming, supplements are becoming closer and closer and closer to pharma where it's probably just going to be at the point where it's, it's just another arm of pharma where they're probably just going to start buying out supplement companies, I bet. Mm-hmm. That's what you're saying. All right, Ben, so uh, a question I uh, really uh, wanted to ask you, and as I said to you before we got online, it's a question I ask all the guests, is in terms of your biggest influences, who would you say have been your biggest influences on you, both professionally and personally? So I, I, I can't escape that. we. It, it's very interesting to see now at least in the states how a lot of people when i first got in which was probably around 2000 as a teenager a lot of those people that were super influential to me are now their own brands so like alberto nunez eric helms like lane lane norton um that that all started as this little tiny group on bodybuilding.com forums um but uh, i do think in my in my younger years, like like Lane was a massive influence for sure, uh, and then really through him, I, I was able to meet a lot of these other people, uh, like also Doctor Zordos. He wasn't really on the bodybuilding.com forums. He'd probably laugh if he was if he was listening to this too, because he would never consider such a thing. But um, yeah, and then I I got to a point where I was I was able to kind of really communicate and work with a lot of these these guys on stuff so they they started off as influences a long time ago and many of them are still close friends and uh colleagues uh and then uh, another one that i can't forget who was also on there and is still a massive influence is dr dom d'agostino uh he he's really both influence and and friend and um I'm not sure if if you've heard of him, but he he's have, pretty course, big. Of course, yeah, I have his, his, yeah. his ketogenic research for cancer. Yeah, I mean, I can't be happier to watch anybody get get bigger and and be out there more and more because I, I I don't know anybody who's more deserving and who's who's more uh, yeah like he just one of the brightest and and most supportive and just just good people. Um, so. Every time I hear his name and that that more people know of him, it makes me happy. And in, in so, would you say those guys are both professional and personal influences? Uh, yeah, I think I think it it they can somewhat be categorized, but I think in in general, yes. Uh, from the people I mentioned, professional and personal, probably uh, like Dom. Dom is definitely an example of, of both. Like he, he makes me want to be a better person, <laughs> mm. uh, like to aspire to be him personally and professionally. Uh, so yeah, I, I think he'd be a fantastic example of that. Okay. So, uh, moving on to kind of one more general type question, and then we're going to get some um, specific questions in around your expertise with training and nutrition. 
in in terms of the good and the not so good things that you currently see within the fitness training and nutrition and I suppose science and research professions, what what would you say are first of all the really good things that you're seeing, you know, that make you proud to be a part of this whole profession? And then conversely at the other end of that spectrum, what are the not so good things you're seeing? And with the not so good things, what sort of solutions would you offer? Oh man, that's a good question. I I think the the good things I see is when people actually connect with people and they're they're doing something positive with positive intent. Um, and it's making others grow because of it and become, again, kind of want to be more well-rounded, more compassionate individuals because of it. Like that, I guess, kind of fills my tank is, is to see people kind of who, who genuinely care and then it genuinely be received and actually have this positive impact, impact where it gets um, perpetuated where like you positively impact that one person that pos- that person begins to positive impact impact others and it just kind of gets passed on um, and I think I think that's something that maybe by like I think I saw a lot more of it before when there wasn't a lot of popularity and and fame to be had on social media with fitness um, and it could just be that it's social media is so in your face that uh, I'm just not seeing as much of it. But um, there are still examples, and it's always still nice to see that. And I think I think the other side is, and this happens anytime something gets gets bigger, is it starts becoming a production, and it becomes almost a little bit like a, like a fad or. Um, I guess something to be sold and it loses a little bit of, of itself. So I think the downside is as powerlifting has blown up and, and some of the other uh, fitness aspects, um, that wasn't really what I got in for. So it's it's strange to see, like, I, I saw more and more that science was be, being used as a marketing ploy, not as actual scientists, like people who didn't even finish high school or just finished high school were calling themselves science-based trainers. Like, um, a lot of that stuff is a little bit disheartening for me to see. And I think it it's confusing for the consumer because um, I still have never lost touch with that internal consumer who was 18 years old and super confused and, and just wanted guidance and wanted answers. And I think it's really not helping anybody. Uh, it's definitely helping fill people's pockets, but it's not helping anybody by marketing the hell out of something, but really not even knowing uh, what you're talking about. And that could probably go on a whole other branch of like, what happens if you don't know what you don't know? Um, then, then, then is it even is it even like malicious intent? Probably, probably not. But. Um, I do think, again, I think there is a responsibility of if you say I want to be professional in a health field or in some type of um, field where someone's giving me their trust to really handle their entire nutritional intake or exercise programming, like, I don't, I think that's a big deal. Like, I don't think that's just, 
something that's oh like I'm just okay like I'm just telling them to squat like I, I think it's a big deal um, and I think if you'd ask any person who's a client of anybody they'd say it's a huge deal too it's just that they just don't know uh, the difference that's why they're out there seeking guidance so um, I guess it's kind of the million dollar question of, of how do you solve that because I, I don't think the solution is to start making these huge sanctions of like only people with an RD can do nutrition or only people with a CSCS can do strength and conditioning. I've seen enough examples of that, that that doesn't need to be, uh, the case. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I guess, I guess at some point there, I have hope that it, it will self resolve over time. Just like people ultimately figure out in the long run that they've been duped for a long time. Um, I think that I've watched in my 12, 13 years of really being a part of the fitness industry, I think I've watched it change so much because of the renaissance of really a lot of those people I mentioned before uh, who were starting the movement then. Like I've watched formulations become better and become more legitimate and like for example like no one really puts arginine in formulas anymore everybody's using citrulline and uh like the dosing of things is becoming more responsible and and more uh evidence-based and um it's not before whereas it used to be let's put in 50 ingredients and put them in all at like this pixie dusting dose now there's better formulations that use less ingredients at higher doses so I'm seeing a lot of positive change. I just think we can't just stop and say this is where we're satisfied. And, and there's, a, there's a responsibility on both ends. I think there's a responsibility of the professionals to continue to educate themselves. And there's a responsibility of the consumer to continue to demand more and be, like you said, like we started, be inquisitive. So that's a very difficult implementation. Um, but I think... I think in general we're moving in good directions. We just have to be careful not to get too lost because at least in, in America now, like the the kind of anti-expert movements and the uh, a lot of stuff that's going on politically, like fake news and stuff like that. I think it's a little bit dangerous for um, for allowing people to access good information because you have to question everything now because it's so confusing. Um, didn't mean to infuse too much politics <laughs> in, but it is part of the world right now, and it, it is inf impacting everything. So You can infuse anything you, you want, my man. You can infuse <laughs> politics or religion or sexuality. I don't care. You can say, <laughs> you can say whatever you want here. There's, uh, there's no holes barred. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, you, you bring up some good points there. Like, it, it as like, a very um, influential... influential uh, inf influential am i saying that correctly <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. yeah you get what i'm saying um philosopher would be alan watts and sort of what alan yep. watts what alan watts maybe realized was listen at the end of the day it just comes down to one thing really and that's acceptance he's like you can't have everything all one way so he has that famous lecture where he's like stop trying to make everything good and he's like if everything in the world was good you wouldn't know what good was because the universe works in contrast there has to be bad to know what good is. There has to be left to know what right is. There has to be hot for gold, man for woman, day for night. So he's like, when people are all like, 
So like we wouldn't know what good quality research or information or good practitioners in the field were if there weren't shitty ones. So it's always yep. there's always going to be that's always going to be the case. Now I suppose maybe you know if we really sat down and, and tried to be logical and reasonable, we could say well we could try maybe diminish the shittiness. Like we could still have some shittiness there, but maybe instead of that being like a 50-50 split, we could make it something maybe like eighty twenty where there's still enough contrast there that we still know what's good. But, you know, you're never fully going to get get it all one way because there's just no free lunch in anything in this universe. And, again, everything works through contrast. You wouldn't know the stars in the night without the darkness in between. I always say to people, like, what's in between the stars? There was, like, nothing. I'm like, yeah, but it's a, it, the nothing gives way to the something. So you you, <laughs> you, you you wouldn't know the stars if the blackness wasn't in between them. So it's, uh, it's like, that's the whole thing with the yin-yang symbol, too. You wouldn't know the black side of it without the white side of it. So to get, like, frustrated or angry or concerned or upset over, like, Oh, why is there such shit people out there? All those people on Instagram and they don't know what they're doing. It's all like, you know, if they weren't there, you know, you wouldn't know who the quality ones were either. So they're they're actually they're a needed part of the whole sort of process, as frustrating I suppose as it may be. So it was one thing that Alan Watts made me realize, you know, through his teachings of Zen Buddhism. You know, he always jokes about you. You talk. To, he's like, you'd ask someone who studied Buddhism for twenty years. You say, what you learned? They go, nothing. And that was yep. That's that's what I was meant. That's what I was meant to learn. Nothing, and, and to be able to come to acceptance with that that we just don't know, there's just so much uncertainty, and through that uncertainty, we try to fill it with all this bullshit, like fucking belief systems, or habits that we put into our daily lives, to give us some element of control, but it's like, listen, at the end of the day, we just don't know what the fuck happens after life, so we just go to accept it, and just live every moment for what it is. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan myself, of, of Alan Watts, and, and uh, it's, it's the voice, I, the, the voice just got me going, his, for sure, his voice is just unbelievable, it's I find it's good recentering stuff too because mm. I'd be lying if I didn't say like I don't get personally affected by being frustrated by a lot of you know what I see but at the end of the day that's that's right like all of those things that you said and that you know a lot of his his lectures and it's good to just kind of recenter and and, and remind yourself of that um, and ultimately uh, yeah you you can't control those things and people need to find it themselves and i think i think over the long term they eventually do it's just i think the part that's unfortunate is there's this there's this irony of wanting to prevent people from making the mistakes that you have that they don't have to necessarily make but at the same time it it just seems we don't learn that well unless we actually make the mistakes mm, ourselves. Yeah, it's it's so funny you say that because it's a paradox I've always thought about where people have often said, "Oh, go get a mentor; they can save you years of mistakes." I'm like, mm, yeah, but like the mistakes are needed. <laughs> they're yep. part, they're part of mastery. Like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was asked a really good question on an interview with a guy called Brian Rose from London Real and. Now I'm paraphrasing the whole thing, and I, like I can't remember the thing word for word, but essentially, like it was kind of like about you know uh, Brian Rose, like you know what what advice would you have given to yourself back in the day? And the grass size was kind of like you know you often hear like uh, about the immigrants who came to America, and he you know he came in and he had to like slave and he worked hard, and then he became like very wealthy or he became very uh, successful. And then he's like, I want to, I, I want to set up a successful life for my family, and I don't want the kids to suffer like I did. And then he ends up re- rearing kids who are entitled and little, little and, <laughs> yep. and little fuckers like. And he's just like, and Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson's whole thing was that like, 
he's like I wouldn't like try to to like you know like like go back and tell my younger self stuff to speed the process and like to reduce any like you know quote unquote like like you know I suppose suffering is a bit of a, a bit of a harsh word but like any sort of difficulties that going through he's like I needed that to shape me for who I was and I was asked that question lately on a podcast too what would you tell the 20 year old Robbie Burke and I was like nothing wouldn't tell him anything I'd be like because it's all meant to be like it's yeah. every experience I've had has led me to the person I am right now in this very moment in time and I, and I often like and when, when I get into these sort of discussions like that are very philosophical like I always am careful with well one how I always word things like so for instance I say these are my current thoughts and my current beliefs based off current science that I currently know <laughs> yeah uh, and, but other things like I, I say all these things as a human who's just as flawed as anyone else like like, I mean, have I done things that, like, I'm ashamed of? And I'll probably still do things in the future that I'm ashamed of. And then <laughs> yeah. to, be, to be able to step out, uh, then also I need to be also with that, I need to be able to step outside of my head and say, why am I ashamed of that? Like, why do I think that's a shameful act? I mean, why am I judging that? So, like, uh, basically I'm just like, I'm just as fucked up or flawed as anyone when I say these things because I often get other, like, humans, <laughs> humans, the way I said that, <laughs> as, if, as if I'm a robot, but I often get other... <laughs> I it's often, okay i am too <laughs> yeah yeah i often get like other people like when they hear me speak like this and they're like they like they, they all they, it's like they give me this like guru look like oh my god you're so deep you're like i'm like no no, no, no stop that stop that this is like, like you, you're you're actually you're you're taking away the complete antithesis of the message i'm trying to get across but one, yep. one, one of the main one of the main the only sort of real true message i ever want to share from my heart to another individual is that all i want for every human being is just to have enough courage to be themselves to critically think yep. for themselves to be able to uh take in information digest it assimilate it, and then come to their own conclusions but the simple fact of the matter is too ben is that critical thinking is fucking hard so i mean that's why people procrastinate it's like oh it's like we know we know what it's like like let's say we're doing an assignment and it's like it's so much easier just to fucking watch netflix right now isn't it than, <laughs> than, than actually and i have a really good friend pat davidson and you would love Pat Davidson if you don't know who he is. I'm not sure if you're aware of who he is or. I'm not. Do you know who Dr. Ben House is? You mean like the TV show? No, 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 no. Okay, no, no. So, so like no, you, I you, don't. you, you, you would absolutely love these two guys. Oh, I, I, oh man, we gotta get, we gotta get a fucking four, four way conversation. Round, round table for sure. Yeah. So Pat, Pat, Pat is like, like just an absolute like brother from another mother. Like, like so this guy like. You just be there talking away one minute about fucking a crazy trip he had to China where he nearly got molested by a prostitute, and then in the next like two minutes we're back talking about quantum physics and Einstein <laughs> and, and, and and like polyvagal theory and parasympathetic and how the post post restoration shoot and FMS and like how fucking I don't know like the Bible and all it's all connected. You know he's that kind of bloke, but um. <laughs> I don't even know why I got out. Why did I even get on to Pat Davidson there? What, what, what was the point I was trying to get across? Pat Davidson, Dr. Ben House, there was something I wasn't uh, going to say there. How it's hard, hard critical thinking is hard. Oh, good man, good man. You put me right back into a thought. So, because Pat's done a lot of research on thinking, and he actually, or sorry, on the brain, and he was saying that, uh, that like, hard, deep thinking is actually perceived as very threatful to the brain. He's like, so as a protective mechanism, the brain, like, it nearly encourages you to, to go procrastinate and get some quick dopamine. I, I I do not deny that from from both personal experience and also watching, you know, watching others or even trying to kind of stimulate that in in others. And you know, I think I think the bottom line is it's 
it's that I know what it's done for me, mm-hmm. like pushing myself past that comfort zone. And I just want to give that to other people because you can solve your own problems. Like you really can. And I think so many people give that away. And in giving that away, they give away themselves. And and they they actually relinquish what is their own power, their own self-healing. And um, I think in a way that's a little bit sad and, and it's accessible. It's just it's it's going to be really uncomfortable and and to kind of bridge the gap of you know what what we started talking about a little bit earlier um with an analogy to training is like you don't go in and expect to feel great after your first week of working out or your first two mm-hmm, weeks mm-hmm. but when you actually see that that change and that adaptation and progression you're like wow this is worth it and there's no way I would have continued. I'm, there's a reason I'm still in school, and I'll probably always still be in some capacity in school. Is every time I look back, like, is it incredibly challenging? And and sometimes I'm like, I want to quit. I want to quit. I know what that feeling is now. Like that just means I'm actually making some progress, and I'm fighting the inertia of of my body that's basically saying like, stop, stop. Like, yeah, there's definitely a point where that can become destructive and you have to learn the line, too. But um, it there there are very gratifying rewards in, in doing it and pushing past that point of discomfort. Um, so, I, yeah, I, 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 totally, I totally agree. And I think um, oftentimes a lot of the things that make us uncomfortable are the most worth it. Yeah, Zach Evanish was a previous guest on my show, and he, he said a great uh, a great statement. He said, "Comfort is the enemy of great." Yeah, yep. And I, I thought that was pretty profound because I think that's something we constantly wrestle with. But I know, personally myself, that's something I wrestle with. In that, you know, like even like right now, like life's kind of comfortable, and it's like you know everything. Like, do I really want to? Do I really want to take this next step into the unknown? And you know, you get these thoughts of, "Oh, things are kind of going well now," and it's like. But then there's a part of you going, listen, to grow, you have to step out of that comfort zone. And, and then there's also a part of you, like, when you're sort of, you know, the old classic cliche, you're on your deathbed and you know you'll be like, fuck, I regret staying comfortable. Like, So, uh, you know, it's it's just getting those thoughts in your head and kind of, it's it's amazing too, is it like the, the sort of the sort of wrestles you have with your own sort of voices in your own mind. Tim Ferriss actually said a very good thing there last year in one of the shows and I think someone, I don't know if it was on his own podcast or if he was a guest, but I think someone had basically asked him, like, what, what's, you know, what's some of the, one of the best pieces of advice you've heard in the last five years? And he was like, don't believe everything you tell yourself. <laughs> it, it, so basically in terms of that, like, that kind of bullshit that holds you back from doing things, you know, so I thought that was pretty profound too. But, uh, so, Ben, listen, we, we could, uh, like, it's funny because this is meant to be more of a training podcast, but... Uh, no doubt we could uh, talk about more esoteric and philosophy, uh, <laughs> philosophical things for the rest of the podcast. But I suppose, uh, listen, I mean, it's my podcast, and, and uh, I'd be happy to have you back on as many times as, as you as you want to come back on, and we can discuss as many diverse topics as, as possible. But uh, just maybe to get a little bit back on track for training. So we've covered your background influences. We, we've covered as well some of the good, not so good things you saw in the profession. Um. If I was supposed to Ben, your training and nutrition philosophies, what would your answer be to that? I I think reason up from first principles. Like I I really 
I think if I was to say it in one sentence, that would be it. Because so, so when you when you say first principles, just explain what you mean by that. I I I guess it's basically a process of deductive reasoning. So finding out what are the fundamental things that are driving everything in in the return you're looking for. So for example, if you want to lose body fat, you really need to determine what is the major factor driving that, which is which is caloric deficit. Um, and then you reason up from there, which is which cuz cuz then what you what you find out from there is I don't need to have a fad diet. I could have these multiple different variations of creating a deficit, make it fit to my particular situation in life and I could still satisfy the endpoint goal. So I think I think reasoning up from that first first principle is what changes everything because then you realize that everything beyond that is some kind of pitch and some kind of sale. It's not necessarily something that is physiologically a necessity or real. And that's where we get really confused and really misdirected. And to apply that same thing with with training is it's it's really about specificity and volume. Um, it, at least if you're talking about the driving of, of strength uh, progress. And then hypertrophy similarly, but it's probably more volume driven. And then what, once you go from there, you can reason up and you can create almost an infinite amount of variations that can allow you to achieve that. So you're not just spinning your wheels and you're that guy who goes in for 10 years and runs the same program or never like never really knows why he's not getting what he wants and he's frustrated and he starts hating training because of it. Um, it's so I try to keep things as simple as possible. The, uh, physical manifestation or electronic manifestation of that doesn't always look simple, but the philosophy behind it is always incredibly simple is I'm, really just trying to push progressive overload over time that's pretty much it great stuff so that's the that's your philosophy if we if we went a little more to um assist a systems orientated question so uh what would be your sort of nutrition and training system so to give a little more context around that question a client comes to you like Walk us through that. Like, what happens from minute one to like the last minute of week of a week twelve or of a year long process or however long someone may sign up for your coaching services. So, basically, what what does your nutrition system look like, and then what would your training system look like? And uh, I mean, you can go off on this for as long as you want because obviously there's going to be a lot of it depends and and context around this. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll attempt to keep myself within the bumper as best I can. Um, so I'll start with nutrition. Actually, it, it's the same for both nutrition and training. Is is the the questions you ask are incredibly like I can't overstate this. They are incredibly important. Like mm. if you really want to be able to help or make a difference in somebody, the initial questions and the questions you continue to ask are going to give you all the answers that you need to to develop and continue to de- refine a good intervention. So. The first thing I, I send are my initial questionnaires, which are, again, hitting at those important key elements that I, I want to know, which is like, for nutrition, it's, have you dieted before? How low have you gone? Have you ever gone into a crash diet? How long did you do it? Were you ever anorexic or have any, any eating disorders? What are your current numbers now? Were you losing weight at that? Do you know how to count? Um, so really getting at the 
important aspects of, okay, am I even going to be able to help this person? And if I can't with an intervention, can I help them at least find some way where I can maybe direct them to better help, uh, even if I, you know, have to send them away. Um, and with training, I'm looking at their frequency, their, since I work predominantly now with powerlifters, I'm looking at the frequency of specifically their main lifts. Um, and what obviously their injury history is like, what, how, how long they've been training again, not, not, these aren't mind blowing questions, but, um, they have a huge difference on building the intervention for somebody and, and really what they want. So the initial plan I write for both ends of nutrition and training for someone is nothing more than a, a first, my first swing at, this is where we're going to start. And it, it can end up being the same intervention for a year or more or if they're continuing to make progress, or that can be one of 30 to 40 variations of what is happening. So what I'm typically doing is every one to two weeks um, following up, I'm seeing how they responded to the intervention, and then I'm either making a small change, seeing how they respond to it, altering something else, or um, if they've made the progress that we've deemed appropriate, I'm leaving it. Uh, I'm leaving it the same, and basically not changing anything until I have to. If it's not broken, I'm not fixing it. Um, so, I, I think, I think the big thing that maybe is slightly different with with me, just that I've noticed over time, is I do take someone's personal um, subjective feedback into account. Where if I if I know on paper a better intervention might be, let's say to have someone barbell squat three days a week because they want to increase their squat, but they tell me like they really are happy by doing box squats or banded squats at least one day a week. I'll put that in because I know that it's not just about on paper what's best. These are, these are human beings um, who motivation it is a factor for. Um, so, and, and to kind of go on the nutrition end, if, if someone says, I really like lower carbohydrate dieting, or I really like higher, higher carbohydrate dieting, I will take into account their personal preference. It's not just, no, this is what the research says. This is what you need to do. Because um, again, the research is giving us the data for the mean, not for the outlier. And you do end up working with outliers sometimes, or, or maybe depending on the, the cards you're dealt, maybe a lot of times. Um, so again, I think that goes back to where go reasoning up from first principles is 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 paramount yeah that's great stuff um just in terms of training then when you think about the sort of i suppose getting that individual from intermediate to maybe a little more advanced and we start getting into volumes and intensities and percentages and or RPEs, how are you looking at that, or how do you formulate that in your mind? Um, I suppose maybe with your sort of powerlifting setup, what, what sort of, again, maybe it's maybe it's philosophy, or maybe it is a system, but like how are you sort of, how are you sort of programming uh, 
those powerlifting programs in sort of like what's the blueprint foundation and obviously within that there's because it's going to be respect to every individual in terms of everything from their um their their body structure to their ability to cope with the volumes intensities of recovery and whatnot and i suppose and i suppose when prescribed volumes and intensities is it again are you making a ballpark sort of estimate of what you think will be you know required for this individual to adapt and then you just sort of go from there because obviously mike isertel has kind of brought it to the to the forefront over the last maybe two or three years this idea of maximum recovery volume and like how do we know when someone's hit the the volume for them so basically just it's a question and i'm rambling here now but i suppose you kind of get where i'm coming from when looking at powerlifting programming and you can talk about bodybuilding afterwards if you want but with the, with powerlifting how are you judging where to start with someone in terms of frequency volumes intensities how are you managing that whole process so i always start somebody off um it, it is to answer the first part of the question, yeah, it is a best guess um, based on based on the initial data I get from them, um, and also the experience I've had just over the years of working with people. Um, but everybody starts off on a traditional volume block, so typically it'll be like assuming they lift three day a week of the main lifts, or of let's say squat bench, or yeah, squat and bench three days a week, maybe deadlift twice a week. I'll usually start them off with like a 70, 75%, 80% intensity um, block. Because uh, there's there's just no advantage. I will not let someone uh, push me into an aggressive intervention that I just don't see the advantage of just because they're panicked. Like I won't let their panic become my panic. Because mm. um, I, I don't find that that's being a helpful coach to anybody. Like then, then you are just you are enabling someone's uh, anxiety and probably actually leading them down a worse path. So um, I need to develop a baseline, and by doing that, I know my first guess isn't always going to be appropriate. So I'll start them off there, and I'll let that volume actually dictate my future volume, really for the remainder of the macro cycle, which ends up being six months up to a year. Um, so I'm using that volume as a top end that I'm not going to exceed for the rest of the block. That flies a little bit in the face of traditional, you know, type periodization, periodization over time because in that model, typically uh, intensity goes up, volume goes down. Whereas I look at it, I, I will admittedly say I'm a tad more aggressive than the traditional models, and I'm looking at that initial volume as my ceiling, which I, I don't want to exceed. And then what I'm looking at long term is by the next time they come around to a block like that, around 70, 75, 80, I'm going to try to push it over time year to year, and that will become my new ceiling. So the model I'm building is a model of slow progressive overload over time. Um, now, the place that changes is if I have somebody who continues to make uh, good progress at really around what the volume I've been doing, I'm, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to be, become more aggressive with it for no reason. Uh, I think the difficulty lies in, so that's what I really apply to gen pop, people who don't need to be pushing for meets, who really just want to get better, get stronger, look better. The, I think the difference and, and the challenge becomes when you're working with high-level competitive powerlifters where 
they're like in the mix of the top three and they really want to win and you really want them to win and they're super competitive and you're super competitive like the the drive to push becomes higher and higher and um a lot of times these guys are competing multiple times a year and they want to peak multiple times a year well guess what that usually that usually requires pretty aggressive intervention and and me getting outside of that traditional framework that i'm working with that i just talked about um because can you drive progress faster by overloading someone more? Yeah, but it's also a much higher risk of injury. So that's something that I think experience really comes in. It's like I think I was more aggressive in the past than I am now, and you learn. Um, uh, do I like have I been able to make people really help people get really strong really fast by by certain interventions? Absolutely. But it definitely put them at higher risks of injury. And I think a lot of athletes would justify that because they want to win. But I think my responsibility is not to get an athlete what they want short term and then have their career end, you know, a year later. Like it's it's to work within, just like you said, that that framework of maximal uh, recoverable volume. Um, but I think I think you work with uh, it's always a, a moving target and it's always kind of a, a gradient and there's a large amount of gray area there. Um, and even I, I work with Jason Tremblay now, the strength guys, we, we do like a coordinated, uh, programming effort, which has worked out really cool because he can offer a lot of the support aspects of conversational things that I, I can't as much. Um, I'm more of a strategizer and, um, but he, he tracks a couple things that we have in, in the wheelhouse of the spreadsheet that we can look at as a data point of like when it should be approaching that line. But again, if you're working with a lot of theoretical and you're trying to make certain decisions based on theoretical. So that inherently means you're making assumptions and sometimes those assumptions are going to be wrong. Um, so it, it's, it's always this interesting territory you're, you're walking between like, I want to give my athletes the best that they can get. I want to watch them perform. I, I want to know that I help them progress best they could but I never want to hurt them. And this is a dangerous sport. Like powerlifting is not the safest thing you can do. Uh, so those things are going to happen, but it's, um, it's humbling. I guess, I guess what I'm saying. And, and it, it does constantly evolve. Like I still don't, I'd say probably every, every six months or so I, my, my programming varies, uh, in terms of, I start doing something a little bit differently than I used to do before. Who would you say have been your biggest influences in terms of programming? Uh, the, that hands down, that's Doctor Zordos, uh, and that that really comes from probably maybe five or six years ago. Like we used to be able, like we used to get on calls like this every week. We used to actually squat over Skype together, <laughs> uh, and then we'd talk about programming and we'd talk about um, different things that are bouncing around in our heads, like stuff that actually has now become published papers that that uh, were both that has come out of his lab that that were actually were both authors on, and we we discussed years before they actually came to fruition. Um, so yeah, Mike is always the guy that is the first person that I, I want to bounce ideas off of when something kind of you know, pinballs up there and, and I'm wondering which direction to go. 
Um, admittedly, I haven't so because so much more of my time is in the pharmacology and formulation stuff. I most of my thought process is in that, and then I probably I, I guess I'm prioritizing more driving maybe innovation there than I am with programming, just because. Mm, mm. In a way, I've. I need to be careful with how I say this. Um, I, I wouldn't say I hit a ceiling. I feel like I've answered a lot of the questions that I wanted to answer. Yes. And, I'm not finding that many new intriguing ones yet to pull me back in. I'm not saying I never will, mm. but I'm finding the questions a lot more intriguing with, pharmacology and. And every bit of physiology with formulating and how I can impact like neurotransmitters and mm, you know mm. muscle contraction, they're just a lot more intriguing to me right now. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I can uh, relate to that because similar processes happen with me where I, I go through certain periods of time where I'm deep into it could be programming and biomechanics, physiology, and then there's periods where I'm like, I, you know, if I read any more of that, I'm gonna get sick. I need to. I need to. Yep. I, I feel more of a, a, a philosophy sort of uh, want coming up, and I'd read more sort of philosophy books and biographies, and uh, and then it's you know similar then when nutrition. I'm like, all right, now I really feel like I want to study some nutrition and um, again biochemistry or whatever it is, and then it kind of just flips around and it goes back. It's it's similar to a conversation I have with Christian Thibodeau about training like christian's like he was like you know i bodybuild for a while and he's like and i feel great but he's like after a while like while i look great i feel weak as shit so he's like then yep. i go then i go and i i, I like i'll do some powerless and an olympic weightless and um or you see he said i might do some powerless and he's like, then i'm strong but i feel very unathletic and he's like then i'll start doing some olympic lifts and a lot of athletics so plyos and explosive work and ballistics and he's like then he's like, I feel really athletic, but then I kind of got, I get a little bit skinny again. And I go back to bodybuilding. He's like, it's just kind of like these little, little, certain like these circles you kind of go through, and these sort of like, uh, these just like areas where you just kind of exchange your, your, your sort of a, I can't even think of the word I'm trying to think of, but you, you just go through these different phases. That's it. You just go through these different phases where your sort of interests uh, just change, and it's the same then also even with your training. But uh, yeah, I can completely relate to that. But just, just before we move on to maybe talking about the pharmacology, Ben, because I'm definitely interested in that and um, sort of, you know, your thoughts of, um, I suppose I kind of want to get, like, what, why did you want to go back and then what do you, what do you hope to, to do with it? But before we get into that, just finally, we're coming off training there, just setting up your training, do you sort of follow a, a sort of a block model, like a accumulation, intensification, and, and a peak, and then, then sort of with the sort of the weekly setup, in terms of the actual lifts, like, would you, I know you mentioned specificity and volume are sort of like first principles here. Would you be hitting the competition squat, bench deadlift all the time, or would you just hit those once a week and then it's more sort of, uh, do you break it into assistance lifts and then supplementary? And I suppose maybe that might change where if you're in that accumulation block, you might, you might even actually do the, the specific lifts. You might actually just work on pure weaknesses and then as you get close to competition, you might fill them in. How does that usually look in your framework? As a default, I the the main lifts are pretty much everything, and I, I will I will let people do hypertrophy work and have pretty much free reign on some of the stuff they want to do there. But unless they tell me otherwise, they're going to get the main lifts. Uh, yeah. As a powerlifter, that's where they're going to get the most return on investment. That's what I'm going to continue having them do. Um, in terms of 
uh, following like a block or, or a traditional programming scheme, I think, again, as a default, I, I tend to, but I don't let that restrict me. So there will definitely be points where I will, I will go pretty far outside of what is theoretically supposed to, you know, be a, a block periodization model. Um, I think, I think that's for two reasons. Number one is I think if, if we always stayed within the lanes, we, we'd never get better. I'd never get better answers. I'd only know how to stay in the lanes. And that's a lot more creatively exciting for me to say, I'm going to do this. Let's see what happens. Um, and unfortunately, because I had a, a, a pretty, pretty much career ending back injury for powerlifting, <clears throat> I'm not able to do that as much with myself, which was a pretty potent means of getting answers and data that I could then uh, apply to clients and, and know where the ceilings were where I shouldn't push somebody because I would always push myself further than I'd ever push anybody else. Um, and it, it's, it's tough to, it's been tough to lose that. Um, but I will still play within a lot safer grounds, I think, uh, outside of what I, what I think traditional models or, or rules. Like, rules are kind of a loose thing for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, I, as I always say, I never use the word rules. I always use the word guidelines. I always tell a, yeah. I always tell a story about this South Korean um, guy I used to live with. His name was Taho, and he told me he was a Buddhist. And one day I walked into the kitchen, and he was talking into a big lump of meat. And I was like, Taho, I thought, you, I thought you said you were Buddhist. And he turned to me in his broken English and he says, are you, uh, I'm terrible at doing impressions, but you'll get the idea. He was like, are you, are you a Catholic? And I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not of, of any faith. Um, I'm more of a spiritual man, but I know what you're trying to say. I'm Irish and that's a big religion here. And he goes, yeah. he goes well, yes, the Catholic Bible, uh, uh, he says, they have rule. Um, no sex before marriage. And I was like, yeah, what about, what about it? He goes, it's a guideline. It's a guideline. So, so so then he he turns around to me and he goes meet for for Buddha guideline guideline. <laughs> so I thought I always think that was very very funny. But uh, yeah. let's uh, let, let's move into this 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 masters that you're doing in, in pharmacology. Like so, what, why did you want to go back and do it? What do you, what are you learning from it so far? What what do you hope to do with it? I think what really drove me was I have felt kind of going back to my original story of, of how I got into lifting and how I was sort of the antithesis of a, of a lifter. My, my priorities were different when I was younger, when I was in high school. And I, I think I was more worried about social status and being kind of popular and stuff like that. And now that's those things aren't quite as important to me and really knowledge is. So sometimes I feel like I'm trying to make up for stuff I didn't care about then. And one of those things was was chemistry like I had no uh I had nothing that really made chemistry engaging for me in high school like I didn't see how it related to my life I didn't see why how it benefited me or anything like that and so I didn't really pay attention I didn't care and that kind of applies to chemistry in in um in undergrad too is like I just thought it was a course I had to take for nutrition come to realize the more I got involved in nutrition and the more I got involved in formulating, I realized that chemistry and biochemistry is nutrition. Um, so I think I, I was humbled enough and realized where my ceiling was that I knew this was a deficit. And 
I don't know that I totally adhere to the philosophy that you should only work on your strong points. I, I, I just don't, I don't know that I, I'm a huge fan of that. I think if you find that there's something you really enjoy doing and you want to get better at, you also need to realize your weak points. Because if you don't, someone else will, and they're going to be better than you at it. Uh, and you need to at least come up to a level of proficiency. And one of the things that I was seeing was all of the best formulas and formulators had chemistry backgrounds. They were either organic chemists or, or they had a, some, type of, some type of strong background in, in chemistry. And I continue, as I formulated more and saw like, oh, I need to learn about this, I realized that it kept bumping into the chemistry and pharmacology thing. Uh, and that if I really wanted to innovate to a greater level than what's already out there now, I need to push my knowledge boundary and I need to understand what makes a better dissolving powder, what makes a, uh, a better chemical property of a certain ingredient and, and what that means. Like I remember when I'd read like all the different forms of creatine and I would just be totally reliant upon the published research on them which when they first came out, there was none. And I barely even knew what that meant. I didn't know what it meant to ethyl something. I didn't know what creatine malate meant and orotate and all these different salts. I didn't know why creatine hydrochloride should be better. Like, um, and I've been able to now answer a lot of my own questions within it and understand why salts are more soluble than a regular ingredient that's not a salt and why a lot of things are the way they, they are with formulations that usually gets borrowed from the way they develop drug delivery systems. Um, so again, it goes back to the, the, the fundamental thing that I said before is the better formulations are probably made from formulators who have worked in pharma and come over to supplements or they have some type of background in, in those things and knowledge or they work with a firm that has drug formulators. So... Um, I guess what I, what I hope to do with it is I, I'm, I want to push the bar. Like I, I, uh, just because the walls continue to close in on, on what is a legal dietary supplement ingredient and what isn't, I, I don't, does that make it more challenging? Yes. But at the same time, that makes me a little more excited because it means that we're all going to get the same things and the only separation is then going to become creativity. And, um, you know, going back to one of the things that you said before about bouncing from topics once they become a little bit mundane is I think one of the things people need to realize that I think in a consumeristic culture we neglect or we overlook is there is an investment period. Like, you don't get your new iPhone a week later just because you want it. Uh, and a lot of times that I've seen and experienced myself is like people want to extract as much as they can from you, but they have no appreciation for the time that it actually takes to develop those ideas. So uh, if, if you want to be a, a fitness persona, it's very difficult to also be someone who's on the cutting edge of innovation and putting out products. Like you can put out new content every week, but it's so difficult to be both on the forefront of innovation of developing something and also being the person who's telling everybody, Hey, look at me, this is what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, like there's a much, very much a quiet investment, uh, requirement of, 
of creating new things and and sometimes that requires pulling back and pulling away and saying like you guys got to leave me alone like i i need i need to go into the cave and and when i have something i'll come out <laughs> yeah it's 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 kind of funny that last thing you just said under the cave because that's kind of how i felt the last few months as well i'm currently doing my master's in strength and conditioning and just with with how some coaching positions uh, potential and sort of fell through. I, I was waiting on a coaching position that I had actually officially gotten, and it, unfortunately enough, so it fell through. But this a first world problem, as I say, there's uh, no one coming to chop my head off in the village. In, <laughs> yeah. in, in the village today, there's food in the fridge and a roof over the head. But because I was waiting around, I like had these eight or ten weeks, and I got so deep into like studying, and it made me appreciate like. You know, you often see these friends or colleagues in the field who just seem to disappear for a while, and you kind of be like, "Where have you been lately?" Like, "Oh, I've just been researching." It's like, and I, I can kind of appreciate that now because when I got into my masters, like, I just got into this like such a flow state and deep work every day, and uh, just like, and we, as we we touched on earlier about this idea of going through different phases of study throughout your life, where you're very deep in one area, and after a while you go to another area and another area, and then it kind of the cycle can rinse and repeat, where you sort of go back again, but. I got real deep into like my biomechanics and physiology because I suppose it was because I was starting to really learn the first principles of those specific sciences and they made just they made everything else make so much more sense. Yeah. Um so like it was just I it was I suppose when you're in such a learning mode in that holy shit I'm learning so much in such a short period of time here, you kinda of get into this flow state. So just when you said like I need to go back and revert into this cave and, and kind of kind of like get away from the world and social media I could, I could just like relate to that as well so it's, it's interesting that you said that too just in, in terms of going back to do that masters ben like what was your knowledge of say chemistry or biochemistry before taking on the masters i mean was it was it proficient was it okay like how hard has it been to sort of get to the level you need to be for this course um in the beginning i was panicked like uh, i I'd, <laughs> I'd be I'd be lying if I didn't say I, I didn't even think I was going to get in. Like I, when I got the admission thing, I was pretty, I was pretty shocked and excited, but I was also intimidated. But that's why I wanted to do it because, I mean, the reality is like I wanted to see if, if I, I'm actually worth my weight. Like I can have everybody in fitness tell me that like I'm good enough and I'm smart enough, but if I actually can't do something that requires that, that that's meaningless to me. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. those those words don't mean anything if, if I can't actually utilize it or or, or get into a program I want to get into. Um, so I, I think I needed to know that and define that. And um, I, from my perspective, like I was, I think I was proficient for someone. For a non anybody in a non science field, or like if I spoke to a chemist or an organic chemist or a pharmacologist, they would be, they would not be impressed uh, with my knowledge before that. Um, and I I don't know. In my opinion, I I was actually pretty deficient. Like I don't know that I even could have given you a great definition of an atom before I started, which is probably surprising for some people to to hear but the reality is like that's just not a big part of nutrition and a not big not a big part of uh anything that was required for me before that like you're not even even in formulation you're not talking about atoms you know like uh because there's no synthesis of anything um and when you don't 
reuse that knowledge or rechallenge it, it just kind of it kind of, it's it's like a muscle that atrophies, like it just kind of dies off. And so I didn't think my my knowledge was that great. I actually probably had a better biochem and organic chem knowledge than I did a gen chem knowledge. Um, just because you get a lot more of that in sports nutrition and nutrition and exercise phys. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I had, that was the first time in my life I had a panic attack actually was the first semester. Cause I was taking two courses. Now I only take one a semester and it was what felt like a quantum leap in, in fields because, um, you know, now I'm required to calculate, uh, ionization of compounds that is using all the, the PKA and, and pH formulas and stuff that I never really um, had to delve into that deep and also um, understanding what, what it all means too. Mm. And now it's, I can look back and it's super gratifying because now I understand why if you mix in branch chain powder in a carbonated drink, why it foams and fizzes. Uh, and before, so does that, has that impacted my formulation? Like if we ever release like a monster type uh, RTD? Hell yeah, because now I know I need to make the correct form of that, uh, like the conjugate acid or conjugate base of that ingredient to make it stable in, in that medium. Um, so it's totally been worth it, but it, it doesn't come without, uh, yeah, definitely my, my questioning of like, shit, can I do this? Like, like, uh, am, am I in over my head? And every time I am, I, I crawl my way out and I make it, but you know, I, it's kind of a roller coaster of you know wondering with every new course, but that's part of the enjoyable aspect of the journey. Are you aware of the Dr. Jack Cruz's work? I am not. Um, it's just like just when you were kind of speaking about like the atom, like so basically, like you know he's a lot of people I suppose would see him as a quack in, in certain ways, but I mean the man is a neurosurgeon, so like you know he he, he actually was a dentist first fully qualified dentist and he went back to medical school and became a neurosurgeon so i mean he has some credentials too but he uh he has a very very interesting blog and actually only recently now he's actually he's actually made his blog a patreon blog so you can only read his blogs if you pay for them because they're just so in depth but uh he will refuse to talk to anyone about nutrition who talks about carbs fats and proteins he's like you're way too superficial like he he, he gets right down to a quantum level and talks about more of a proton, neutron, electron, and even, like, light spectrums, and he, you know, he ties everything in with, like, quantum physics and Einstein's relativity and the photosynthetic effect, or photos, photo, whatever, photoelectric effect and all that. Yep. Um, and uh, he, basically, he basically talks about, like, how water, magnetism, and light are, like, the three major things we need to be manipulating. And he's massive, massive into circadian biology, circadian rhythm, and how light, you know, just like that we're, we're, we're really our beings who emit light and all about like the mitochondria and red light and the frequency of the mitochondria. He's always talking about like the inner mitochondrial and the proteins on the inner mitochondrial membrane, you know, complex one to four and then APTAs and how like the electromagnetic frequencies around now are, are like, they're actually like extending the distance between those, which makes uh, pro like the hydrogen proton and um, tunneling longer, which actually makes the cell more, uh, makes it less efficient at producing energy and then how that's lending itself to all these chronic degenerative diseases because behind every chronic degenerative disease is like mitochondrial dysfunction but 
he's he's just at a level like where he won't even talk to you about nutrition on, on that level. So when you were just saying that like, you know, before you started this course, you, you were like didn't didn't even really need to know things like about Adams or or go down that deep. He's like his whole thing is you do like and, and he often he's referenced the work of Jim Alcalady and actually it was Danny who referenced his work with you, Jim Alcalady. And Alcalady like uh, said one time, if you want to know like everything in the universe and life, you need to know biology. And then, yeah. and then, like everyone was like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." And he's like, "Yeah, but to understand biology, you need to know chemistry because chemistry, because yep. chemistry underpins biology." And everyone in the audience is like, "Oh, that makes sense." Yeah. And then he's like, "Yeah, but to understand chemistry, you need to understand physics." Physics, yeah. Because physics under, underpins chemistry. And then he's like, "To understand physics, you need to know maths." Math. And he's just yep. like, "There's your hierarchy or your first principles." And that's where Jack is currently at at the moment. And it's funny because then, in a sort of sports preparation um, perspective, I have another mentor in that field called James Smith. He's often known as the thinker. And James James looks at sport through, uh, through maths. Everything is like through derivatives and, and integrals. And like so like, and then you get Jack who's looking at health and wellness and longevity through basically physics and maths as well. And it's just like first principles. So it's just interesting to hear that now that you've gone back to, you know, more chemistry and organic chemistry. Like it's like, oh, like uh, these carbs, proteins, and fats are like really superficial understanding. I need to get to know like how like, all this stuff turns into protons, electrons, neutrons, and even deeper to that, like subatomic particles and light and frequency. Yeah, I think I, I've always acknowledged, like I even said to myself before I went back for this, is that I'd like to go back for chem, and then I'd pro- after that I'll probably want to go back for physics, and after that I'll probably want to go back for math. So I don't know that that's going to happen. It's I don't rule it out um, because I I think each time I reach the ceiling that I was looking for of, of questions or answers and I can't develop a deeper question, then I, that's usually when I go in search of, of the new field that will, will lead me there and help me get there. Um, but I, I, think, I think more than anything now, it gets harder and harder to shoot down a hypothesis that, that is at, le- at least built on some type of premise that is, like, that is logical. Um, and, uh, I, I look at what I do as really excavating. It's just, it's just constant excavation whenever I formulate or anything else. And, um, I I think I've just openly acknowledged that it's, it's not, I don't think I'll ever find my way to the other side. It's like when you're a kid, you talk about digging your way to China. Like, (laughs) uh, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to come out on the other side, it's just, uh, I'll just keep digging because it's as one person, it's impossible to figure it all out, but man, it, it, it can become really fun bouncing all those things around. Um, and, and really that's where, like, I think the thing that's unacknowledged, I was, I was watching or reading something about like the lone genius myth and, but the reality is the perception on the outside is like Einstein you know, did all of this and came to these things himself or Newton did himself, but there was this accrued knowledge leading up to that. And then they kind of bridged a lot of gaps that were just considered unbridgeable. And that happens when you have, you can unite seemingly ununitable concepts and ideas or fields. And I, and this is not a knock at all at someone who goes in and stays in the same field for a career. I have no problem with that. That's how you become the best in the field in a very specific pinpoint area. But I don't know that that's the interesting thing for me. Like, uh, to me, 
what intrigues me and drives me more to go and have diverse things is uh, I want to jump a little bit outside of that, be able to bridge the connection back and then jump again. And each time it becomes a little further of a jump. And in doing it, I think I've learned enough. Like I even relate stuff from BMX bikes when I've talked to people about lifting weights. Like it's because you have to inherently understand and feel the distance from the lip of a jump to the landing. Uh, you're not sitting there doing, you know, equations. And um, so it's very similar to the proprioception of, of lifting in a squat. Um, like you, there's some very intricate calculations that are probably going on that are a little bit subconscious to you um, or that you could do them outside. A researcher could do them. But to do the task, you need to be able to call on a little bit higher order things um, that you are conscious of. And I, I guess that's a little bit abstract. What I'm really trying to say is the more I bridge out, the more uh, I feel like my mind encourages itself to keep bridging out rather than the, the opposite. It's it's actually um, it, it's something I've discussed with, with uh, a lot of people on the podcast lately that the more and more I meet masters of a particular craft or profession – the more I realize this uh, common trend that they all have this massive foundation of general knowledge that supports their specific knowledge, and if you yep. think and if you think about it, it's just like training. It's like general general physical preparation that supports specific physical preparation, and then in turn supports specific sports performance. And I see knowledge accumulation as the same as in that you know first we have this sort of you know it's really good to have this broad. Uh, this breadth and this really solid foundation of general knowledge that then can support your uh, your knowledge in a specific area or a, a, an area where you are seen to be a master of that particular craft. And again, any master of a particular craft or field or industry that I've met, they always are generalists. They all they always are massive generalists at heart. They can speak about so many different domains in in one sentence, like you know, so like a Dan Faft and Altus or like a Sue McMillan or just these guys have this this like really broad breadth of knowledge, and it seems to be like the more wider um, and deeper this foundation of general knowledge they have, the more specific or the more of a master they actually become in their area of expertise. So I, yeah. I, I see it just like training too, and even even how I actually study Ben is kind of like training. I nearly do like a block realization thing. So like let's say there's a topic I want to get into, I'll do an accumulation phase where. I'll accumulate resources around that, you know, research articles, books, uh, people who are seen or, or respected in the field, podcasts, videos, and then I'll go into an intensification period where now I'll actually study that material. So I've accumulated, now I'll study it, and then realizations like coming to your own conclusions. So that's yep. kind of that's kind of like how I do it with, with uh, study as well. But uh, yeah, I see like uh, mental and intellectual sort of training no different than how you do the physical body you know general specific and then sort of you know peaking if you like if you want to put it in that regard in terms of bringing something into creativity and just going back finally on you were kind of speaking about uh, you brought up the word knowledge and again this comes again from he 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 won't like me calling him a mentor james because he, he's like he's he's a complete antithesis to mentors he believes mentors <laughs> he, he believes mentors give you a bias you know what i mean which is true sure. to an extent but he's had a profound influence on me. But James would often talk about like no known knowledge or, or like what, what is already known versus new knowledge. And you know, like you were kind of saying about Einstein and, and Newton that 
you know, they, they built their concepts off stuff that was already known, but they still brought something brand new in, into creativity. And, and James would say the same thing, that new knowledge cannot be built, cannot be known without what's already known. But his whole thing is like, there's so there's so much knowledge out there that's not known by people that, that is already known. Like you could tell me something, like earlier on with supplements, you could tell me something that I didn't know that's new knowledge to me, but it's not new knowledge in the grand scheme of the world. Like yep. Nothing new was brought into creation. Whereas James is like, and, and, and this James uses this as an argument against um, experience. Like he he cannot stand this, uh, and you probably you'll understand this. Like he's like experience is not equal expertise. So like you could have someone who's doing some thirty years, but he's like, but like they can be doing some thirty years, but he's like, what happens then when new knowledge comes after thirty years? He's like, all their experience at that point is is null and void because all their experience is based off old knowledge. He's like, something new has come into fruition. So it's like everything is based off knowledge. So he's like, either either the knowledge is already known and you just didn't know about it, which it just you were ignorant to it, or else he's like, with brand new knowledge, he's like, that changes the whole game all the time. He says like, that's part of evolution. So his whole thing is that like when you get to say, oh, I've been doing this thirty years, he's like, yeah, but like a lot of new knowledge has come into fruition in the last thirty years. So like your experience means nothing. Yep. Yeah, I think I think it's it's using it's trying to almost like use it's the same idea as trying to use IQ to justify that um, that means that that is an indicator of someone's top success or creative uh, contribution to a field. And yeah. we actually know by, by the data that that's not true. So um, I, I, I agree because I, I think it's, it's this marriage of, or it's a dance between experience and your knowledge base and, and your constant uh, accrual and addition to that knowledge base. Experience is important, absolutely, but is it everything? No, and neither is knowledge. Hmm. It's like Paul Check has this thing about education versus experience, and he's like, the educated person is like the fat, overweight nutritionist who tells you what to do. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, you know, the experience is kind of the person who's just like is all airy fairy with, with no sort of objective, you know, yep. like they have no objectivity to anything they do. And he's like, it, it needs to be a blending sort of, of both. But uh, this, uh, I suppose. Wrapping up here, um, I, I just maybe ask a few more quick fire questions, and, and you can, and again, the answers can be as long or, or as short as you want. But um, before we go on, is, is there anything that I haven't asked that you would have liked me to ask, or is there anything you'd like to, to get off your chest that you'd like to state right now? Or um, I don't think so. I, I think my only request would be that uh, we both have a short time away, and we, we reconvene again in the future, because I'm sure we'll both have things on that list. But I'm traditionally a long thinker, not necessarily a, a good rapid fire, uh, like a machine gun. Oh, yeah. well, I mean, I'll, I have a few more here, but sure, listen, if we got to wrap it up, we'll wrap it up. But sure. Uh, in terms of your biggest lessons, man, that you've learned so far in your life and your career, what, what would what would be your your top lessons? That, if you want to just have one, or I usually ask for a, you know like your top three. I could do top three. Um, I think I think number one is that you don't necessarily get things when you want them or when you think you should get them. <laughs> so you you have to keep going, uh, and just just because you feel that you're deserving at a certain point doesn't mean you are. Um, and you know, life is kind of probabilities, and the only the the best way for you to improve your odds of the probability is is keep trying uh, and and accrue as much as you can and shift the odds as much as you can in your favor, but understand that it's still a coin flip. Um, so I think if I was to put that in one sentence, it's just keep going. Um, the second one would be, 
I guess I guess the importance that I've learned most recently is is to continue to learn, know, and listen to yourself, and that's something I've been doing a lot more, um, really in the past probably two years, um, and and that could be as simple as when you have a feeling about like an intuition, uh, allowing like don't repress it or push it down, or it could mean something like. A specific example for me is like I've just been reading more into personality types and into uh, things that I've felt my whole life but never really had, I guess, terms to define them. Like one of them is just introversion. Like now I'm able to read more about introversion and actually feel like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me because I'm introverted. Whereas like most of my life I felt bad or like there was something wrong about being introverted. So um, I, I think I think the best the best way to move forward in life is is by constantly knowing and getting to know yourself better. Um, so that would be number two. Uh, number three, never stop giving. Right. Um, there's times where it gets, it gets hard um, because there's ups and downs of everything in life, but but you can't stop. And I think I've, I've had so many good examples in my life of people like just to even do what I do now who have given so much like my parents and uh, certain people, like I said, like Dom and, and Dr. Doc, Dr. D'Agostino and Dr. Zordos, um, people who have, who have given and um, it like, it, it's, it's never really, it's never a wasted investment. Like it, it always means something and it always has a positive impact whether you can see it or not. And um, I think in my, in my past really five years or so, there's been this exhaustive period where, you know, I almost felt like I, I overstretched myself. And, but now I look back on it and it's like I could see some of the impacts of positive effects it's had on some people and, and just also, you know, ways it's made me grow too. And, and it's, it's never... It's never a bad thing. It's always worth it um, to give. Because at the end of the day, after you die, you can't give anymore. <laughs> so, unless unless you leave a shit ton of money in your will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then you can't give it out. That everybody's left to fight over it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what would your top advice be to all the listeners? And and when I ask this question, this advice can be anything. It doesn't have to, you know, uh, center around the. Um, any topics we've covered in the podcast, it can be anything to do with uh, anything basically that you think could, could uh, greatly enhance anyone who's listening to this. I think the bottom line would come down to, and this almost sounds religious zealot like, but it's not, I think it's a way of thinking and it just happens to fall into the scientific method. But I think people should always remain skeptical. And I think continue to always ask questions like mm -hmm. do not stop don't stop asking questions because you're uncomfortable or you're worried about someone else being uncomfortable if you really want to seek the truth and seek answers and and not be taken advantage of or manipulated you have to um you have to constantly be inquisitive because when you stop asking then people take the liberty that you can be taken advantage of and i think i think i have an interesting perspective being so involved in business and then also 
science, and I think I identify being much more of a scientist than a businessman. And I've seen that side from a consumer perspective and then operating a business, how a lot of a lot of consumers, their mentality is they want to be taken advantage of because they want to believe so bad that they stop the the driving of innovation in an industry because the business meets the demand. Um, so like the overhaul I talked about of people stop putting stopping putting in junk ingredients, the only reason that changed was because the consumer demand changed, not because science changed. That information has been out for it was out for years before formulations changed. The reason that the formulation changed was because of the demand. So um, there is a responsibility, not just on the experts. It's on the consumer, too. And that comes with a frame of thinking. Um, so I, I, I fail to see many disadvantages of, of always asking a lot of questions, and oftentimes the hard ones. Yeah. Yeah, there's another mentor of mine, James Fitzgerald, and going back even to Jane Smith, but they always are reiterating to me the importance of asking questions. And always, like, they, they're too, basically, I say this in a sort of like loving way, the two of them are fuckers in that they just, <laughs> they, they, they just constantly keep digging at you and digging yep. and digging and digging. And it's, it's true. It's, uh, it brings you into, it, into uncomfortable places. But as we spoke earlier on, like comfort is the, is the enemy of becoming great. So, you need yep. to you need to be willing to go into those places or you know those those like and this is the thing too this comes down to perception too when you say going into a dark place or like when you speak about these things most people like see them as such negatives like they see death as negative and rainy days as negative and deep thinking as negative and hard work as negative and it's just that's all such mindset and perception and conditioning and bullshit that we've gotten like whereas like you could easily just flip that around an instance and say listen if if Without debt, I wouldn't know what bleeding life was. Without fucking hard, you know, thinking, I wouldn't really know what who I am or what I stood for. Without a rainy day, I wouldn't know a sunny day. And um, so again, it kind of comes back to like Alan Watts. He really got my eyes to that, so I need to uh, shake his hand if I ever get to meet him in another life. <laughs> but uh, yeah, listen, I uh, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, definitely, um, definitely can concur with that or agree with that for sure. In 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 terms, Ben, of your top resources. What what would you say are your top resources? And again, with this, this could be like anything. It doesn't. Most people, you know, mention a book, but it could be a video, it could be a course, it could be a, a specific individual. Um, what would your top resources be? I think um, I think the first way I'll start to answer that question is for people to understand the amount of access they have in their hands in their household, usually in their backpack, that they can utilize at any given time. There become less and less excuses to not uh, educate or to, if you really want to know something, there's less and less excuses to, to access it. And yes, will, will you be misdirected in the beginning? Often, yeah. But making those mistakes are what rectify you to the better path. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't I didn't know everything immediately as soon as I wanted to about nutrition when I decided I wanted to start getting leaner and lifting weights. Um, so big things like if I want to know, for example, if I want to synthesize something, um, I will use, I'll use YouTube and I'll see if anybody synthesized it before and I'll watch their procedure. And then it's just like watching a pre-lab before you go into a lab. Like it's just, I have the access now of YouTube where there's, 
universities who have it. Like there's open courseware from the Ivy League universities that you can access free. Um, so I'll use those. I use YouTube. I, uh, <laughs> I I'm going to put this out there. If if I, I mean it is a resource and it's it's something that I'd recommend. Um, just realize that I don't know how long it's going to be out there. It's like the Napster of scientific papers, but SciHub, like. If I ever need a procedure that I want to prepare something or I want to formulate something and I want to know the human research, yeah, I'll check PubMed, but if I want to pull the full text, I'll go on to SciHub. Yeah, um, it's constantly changing its fucking address. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. But I really think that's been... I, I love that concept. Like, I think that information should be accessible to people because those papers are ridiculous if you're not an institution. Like, I even am. I'm, I'm affiliated with University of Florida, but I don't... Like there's a lot of papers I can't access through there. Same, and, same with me and my masters. Like I, so many papers I want can't get through my university, and then I go on there, and a lot of times I can get them. Yep, yep. Um, sometimes it'll start with a simple Google search, and then I'll find really good resources. Uh, like Master Organic Chemistry is a good one for the chem stuff that I have to know. Khan Academy is always phenomenal reference point mm -hmm. for fundamental mm -hmm. stuff. If I want to go back and relearn or touch up on something. Are you aware of Coursera? Yes, I've actually joined courses, but I haven't followed through because I have so many real courses yeah, same, to do same, that. Same as me. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, yeah, Coursera is, is a possibility. Um, now there's more and more online degree programs. Like, what I do is an online program, and they uh, it, it's amazing the resources that we, we get access to. Like, um, and, and through it, I find more access access to other programs that they show us. Like, there's a lab simulation program called Labster that basically allows you to go on and run uh, in a simulated environment. You can run an HPLC, you can do titrations, you can do chemistry stuff um, and touch up on stuff. So for me, stuff that I didn't have a lot of lab experience doing, I could go and run on there and you know understand certain things that I didn't have as much experience to uh, rely upon. Um, there's a website that I use a lot called Chemicalize when I'm either synthesizing something or I'm looking for, without having to go through the long calculations, I can go on and type in uh, an active compound like caffeine, and I could see at what pH uh, it, it alters to the conjugate acid and which pH it alters to the conjugate base. Uh, and that's very helpful. Mm. Um, um, so, I, yeah, and other than that, just textbooks. Like, if, if there's something... Like, for example, I will just, this will be the last thing uh, I'll use because I know I've kind of thrown a lot of them. Um, if there's a topic that I, I really determine that I want to learn more about, um, if I can't find a quick brush up, or I do, I'll go and watch a YouTube brush up. I will then, if I'm still intrigued and I want to learn more, I'll go and find textbooks in that field. Like, I just bought The Art of Computer Programming, uh, a, a box set of textbooks. Um, and that came from my desire to develop my own algorithms for things. Um, so it's like it's just chasing the rabbit down the hole a little further. And I never I have a whole room full of textbooks that I have not for one second regretted buying any of them because um, I always have them as a resource manual now. Yeah. And they're always a reference text. So I'd say, you could use any of those. You could use all of those, but I think that would be a great start 
for yeah, anybody who really wants to learn more about a field. I, I'd be similar too in terms of probably over the last two three years, I've become more of a a textbook buyer as well. I think textbooks are just an absolute bargain because I think it, I, I I I think what throws most people off when they hear the word textbook is they're still in that subconscious belief system of they have to read a book cover to cover, which is the biggest fucking lie. Yep. It's the biggest yep. lie that people have been sold. It's like a guilt thing. They're like, oh, if you don't read cover to cover, I feel guilty. It's like, particularly with a textbook, you do realize a textbook is a book within a book. Like a chapter is like a mini book within that. And it's purely just for a reference. Like, um, And it's just like, it's the same even with like, non-textbooks that people believe you have to read the whole thing cover to cover. It's like, the main tenant message in that book is like only in 20%. The rest of the 80% is filler so that they can actually officially sell that book on a bookshelf. Because if you turn around to a publisher and said, my whole book's reading really 10 pages of information, of, that, that, of, of wordy information, you're like, well, we can't sell that. <laughs> you're going to, have to yeah. fill, it, fill it out with crap, basically. It's like, uh, okay. Because like, if you take any of those speed reading courses, they're like, okay, do you want to know how to learn what's in this book? First of all, you read the back of it. It tells you what the book is about. Then you go into <laughs> Table of contents, you read the introduction, the preface, and then you basically get the chapter titles, and they're all the main tenants of that book, and that's about it. There's there's a reason there's an index and a table of contents in there. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, yeah, a, a textbook is not a novel. It's not necessarily meant to be read like a novel either. So. Mm, absolutely. Uh, what uh, Last two questions. What books or book, What book or books are you reading right now? Uh, I just finished The Introvert Advantage, um, that I really enjoyed, uh, let me see the full title of that, so I can, uh, refer people. Uh, it is called The Introvert Advantage, How to Thrive in an Extrovert World, Marty Olson Laney, and I'm also pretty far into... Uh, Quiet, which is a book written by Susan Cain. It's also about introversion. Um, then I have my pharmacology textbooks. Um, what else do I have in the queue? Uh, I have three other books upstairs on my bed. One of them is called Incognito, and it's about subconscious mind. Mm. Um, and I read a couple books by Robert Sapolsky. Yeah. Uh, which are phenomenal. One of them was The Problem with Testosterone, and that was an uh, amazing book. Um, I read a book by a guy named Aaron Stern, who basically his life goal was to create geniuses. Uh, so his, he created a daughter. Her name is Edith Stern. She is like one of the top IQ uh, people in the country. And he basically wrote a book about the method he used to kind of create her and that was a very interesting book um it actually makes a lot of sense it, he called his system total education immersion so basically every opportunity was an opportunity to educate his child so if she asked he'd he'd encourage her to ask probing questions and he'd then answer to the best of his ability and one of the things he touches on in the book a lot <clears throat> that speaks very true to me is i think we we determine as adults what is the appropriate level of knowledge for a child, and I think, I think it should be the child's curiosity that should determine that, not the adult's limitation. What was the name? Um, what was the name of that book again? Uh, one second. The making of a genius. The making of it's funny you bring that up because it was something I meant to say to you earlier on when you brought up the the concept of IQ and genius is that. 
like to me like that word is just like so misused in that like so when someone goes Einstein was a genius it's like yeah he was a genius when it came to physics but when it came to yep. like nutrition and exercise he was a dumb fuck <laughs> yeah yeah like he was a illiterate li- in that regard so like what really is a genius then you know to me like someone like a a Paul Check is fairly clued in because he seems to have a lot of the a lot of things connected together in that you know he is very well read when it comes to you know like he he does read objective science books and then but at the same in the same breath he's as esoteric and subjective as could be as well so but uh, like like when you talk about someone who's a genius from an IQ standpoint and then like you see all these for instance you even know you see like here's a top cancer doctor or a top guy in the world, and, like, they're in bits mentally and physically and emotionally. They're yep. all over the place. Like, they're 40, and they look like they're 85, and, like, <laughs> they're barely they're barely hanging on, and they're not nice people, and it's just like, like, you might be a genius when it comes to this one tiny little aspect of molecular fucking biology when it comes to cancer, but in regards to just, like, how much water or sleep do you get? And it's like, or just, like, like, what are your macro intake? Like, even just simple things like that, it's just like, like, do you even like do any type of exercise like walking it's just like how can you be so intelligent in, so, in one area and be so stupid in some other areas yep yeah well it's just you just become almost compelled or driven by that uh and, well anyway without without going down the rabbit hole into that I, yeah, I, would, yeah. I would i would actually recommend someone who's interested in that type those type of questions to buy sapolsky books because that's, he's a behavioral biologist. Oh yeah, he's, so. his whole course is free on YouTube, and as you just alluded to, like, yep. like, there's no excuses now with, with the with the information we have at our fingertips. But uh, yeah, and, and listen, and even though as, as I and I'll wrap up on this, uh, even though as I say, like, how can somebody be so stupid? Something like, I just for you, the listeners, all, the listeners for me, say this means times like one thing, one sort of sort of concept that really profoundly changed how I see and perceive reality was coming to understand the field of epigenetics and like how the environment shapes an organism <laughs> because. What that made me appreciate was that everyone and everything is the way they are for a reason. Because, again, yep. the, the environment has such a massive influence on an organism, I suppose. The one sort of thing we need to appreciate as humans is that what separates us from all the other animal species is that we, we actually can choose our perception of our environment. But most people are, are like, so unaware and are, are so locked into their subconscious mind like that they are completely unaware that they can actually control their perception of, of their beliefs and experiences so that they can actually, like, take control and responsibility for what they bring into creation moment to moment. But again, knowing that or having an awareness that most people are, again, the way they are for a reason, and most people are the way they are for a reason, and it's completely oblivious to them, it gives you a, a greater appreciation for compassion and empathy and understanding. So, like, what, yep. what, 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 what I did say there, like, oh, how can someone be so stupid? At the, at the same breath, I understand why that person is in that situation. Yep, yep, exactly. So, Ben, last thing, we, we're going to dinner. You can invite five people, dead or alive. Who would you invite and why? That's the very last question I always finish off on. Uh, number one would be Einstein. I just find him as a very huge personal inspiration, and not not just not even from the science aspect. Just like I've I've read his books about um, like his letters to people and stuff, and mm. uh, his personality. And I just I identify a lot with his personality. Um, Tesla would be another one. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just very intrigued by him. He what was, a what a fucking now that that associate genius for a fat guy it is intriguing. Yep. Um, I would love to meet Elon Musk. Nice. Uh, I I actually another personality meshing. Uh, ironically, outside of fitness and everything else, completely is John Mayer. I play music. I play guitar. 
I think he's a good guitarist. I think he's a phenomenal songwriter, and he's he's eccentric, and I identify with a lot of the strange things he says. Jack, 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 it's Jack White for me when it comes to music. I'm, fasc- okay, I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated with Jack White. Uh, all right, I have one more to pick, so I, I need to take a second for this one. Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that. That is an interesting one. Possibly. I'm, I'm already, I'm already, even if he was, or even if he did exist, that's, that's the other question. Anyway, that's another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um. Man, I, I don't know. I, I kind of want to leave that one open ended. Um, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, you can leave it open ended. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to save my last one. I need to think about it more. So that's that's a pretty good lineup. So we have Einstein, we've got Tesla, John Mayer, and Elon it? Musk. Elon Musk, yeah. That's, that's not, <laughs> that would be a very interesting table. That would be an interesting table, all right. Without question. Yeah, Elon Musk can cover the the, the, the bill. He's pretty rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> all right. I have to throw someone weird in there. Someone weird in there has a curveball, but I'll, like, I'll like, get that like, one to you later. Like, like Seth MacFarlane or something. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Or Bill Burr or someone like that. would be hilarious to have one of them guys there. Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say Bill Burr or Elon must be so funny. Bill be like, you such shit. What are you going to invent next? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that comedian would be a good choice. Yeah, so uh, Ben, listen, this is absolutely fantastic. I'll wrap up the show here and then I'll, I'll take a bite to you offline. So, guys. Fantastic uh, interview here with Ben Escrow. We covered a lot of different and uh, diverse topics. Um, oh, Ben, one thing I want to say to you while I'm on here too. Uh, have you read the book Mastery? I think you'd find that book really good by Robert Greene. I have not, but it's in my wish list. On yeah, Amazon. you'd love that because just talking about connecting dots and, and sort of like bringing, th- you know, like putting things together and innovating things. That book is, is uh, a lot about that. And that, that book profoundly changed me too in, in many ways. So Mastery would be great for you. But guys, fantastic episode with Ben Escrow. Definitely gonna have him back on again. Like uh, like has happened so many times before with previous guests. You, you sort of meet another kindred spirit, another another brother from another mother. So I definitely think Ben will be a future guest uh, for for many more episodes to come. So for now, and everyone listening, thanks for your time and attention, guys. I hope you found some benefit today. But for now, I'll talk to you all soon. Be well, and as I say at the end of every show, stay strong. Mm-hmm.